Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. We are coming to the close of the uh, section we are currently in that runs from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, a section that's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And in particular, we're in that final section from verses 13 to 27 of chapter 7. And in verses 13 and 14, Jesus Christ has just gotten done giving an invitation, if you will. You know, we would call it an altar call, except there was no altar and there was no organ. Uh, But anyways, he gives an invitation. And he's been preaching a sermon. And of course, every sermon, a good sermon, includes in it an invitation to come now. Receive Christ um, uh, to get your life right with God, which the Lord is basically doing, challenging his listeners, and of course everyone who reads this sermon, to enter by the narrow gate if they really want to find God in heaven. Of course, as we've already studied, the narrow gate represents Jesus Christ and the gospel, whereas the broad gate represents the false religion of the scribes and the Pharisees who are preaching a system of outward rituals, ceremonies, and various good works as a way to approach God and to gain access into heaven. Therefore, the broad way, as we've already seen, is the path of human achievement. The narrow way is the path of divine accomplishment. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. As in, it is finished, right? Which Jesus said from the cross. Religion is spelled D-O. Religion encourages constant works, rituals, and so on as a basis for staying in good standing with God and eventually earning access into heaven. So the broad way represents all other religions of the face of the planet. All other religious systems that tell people that if you follow our way, you're going to get into heaven, you're going to find God. Jesus said there is only one way that will lead a person to God, and that's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Here's the problem. And it's nothing with what Jesus said, of course. But the problem is that we've pointed this out last time. What makes this choice so difficult? Jesus is challenging everyone to enter the narrow gate if you really want to find God, get to heaven. Here's what makes the choice so difficult. In front of these two gates are false prophets doing everything in their power to direct people through the wrong gate and down the wrong way. They are like spiritual traffic cops blocking the entrance to the narrow gate while they wave people down the broad way that leads to destruction. And Jesus knew this only too well. And so after he admonishes people to enter through the narrow gate, he quickly adds a warning in verses 15 to 20, admonishing us to beware of these false prophets, these people who will try to deceive us. There's a lot of people who are wanting to find God, and yet the devil has placed many false teachers, preachers, pastors, and prophets in the way. The devil has done this so that People who are wanting to find God, well, the devil tries to capitalize on that and just sends them down the wrong way that leads to destruction. In fact, verses 15 to 27 are built around two extremely important warnings. The first one is beware of false prophets in verses 15 to 20. The second is beware of false professions in verses 21 to 27. False professions of faith. People that... Pray a prayer to receive Christ, but really their heart has not been given over to the Lord. And so we'll talk about that when we get to that section uh, next time. But beware of false prophets, verses 15 to 20. We've already looked at what a false prophet is. 
How will a false prophet come? Well, they'll come dressed in sheep's clothing to deceive. They'll come looking like a true pastor, shepherd, etc. I mean, you're not going to deceive too many people if you walk into church wearing a t-shirt that says, I'm a false prophet, all right? So the devil's a lot more clever than that, obviously. So he disguises his, uh, his uh, uh, ministers of unrighteousness, okay, that work for the devil. He disguises them as true ministers of God. Now, the big question is with regard to false prophets. Look, we know they're, they're real. We know they're out there. We know they're going to try to come into the church. That's a given. Jesus told us that. The real issue we really need to understand is how can we know these false prophets? That's the biggest uh, thing we need to understand. Jesus said we'll know them by their what? By their fruits, right? In fact, let's read verses 15 to 20 again. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. In these verses, Jesus gives a simple illustration from nature. In fact, it's a law that goes all the way back to the beginning of creation, where God said that everything would bring forth after its kind. This is an immutable law of sowing and reaping. And that is that if you sow tomato seeds, you won't reap watermelons. And if you plant asparagus, you won't reap kumquats, Right? I mean, God ordained from the very beginning that you will only reap what you sow, or again, that everything in nature will only bring forth after its kind. Now, that principle not only applies to nature in the sense of agriculture, but it also applies to things like human nature in the sense of the actions that are produced in the lives of believers and then unbelievers. Now, here's what I mean by that. We all know that unbelievers have a fallen nature, which means they, their spirit is dead and the Holy Spirit does not live inside of them because they haven't received Christ yet, right? And since the Holy Spirit does not live inside of them, they can't then bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. All that they will produce in their lives are the works of the flesh. Now, turn to Galatians chapter 5. And let's look at something Paul said that kind of sheds some light on this. In Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19, Paul said, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me stop there. That's the key idea. Those who practice these things. We are not saying that an unbeliever can't ever do anything good. Nor are we saying that a believer can't ever do anything bad, like fall into one of these sins that Paul mentions here. We are just saying that what will characterize the life of a true Christian is the works, the, excuse me, the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul's going to say. And what will characterize a life of an unbeliever is the works of the flesh. In contrast to the works of the flesh, Paul goes on in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. 
is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Notice that Paul contrasts, though, the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, folks, fruit can only come from life, and life only comes from God. We can't make fruit, right? I mean, if you don't start with a seed which has the life of that fruit in it, then you're not going to ever have fruit. We can't make fruit. We can plant seeds that will grow fruit, but we can't make uh, fruit. Fruit, as I say, can only come from life, and life only comes from God. The person with a fallen nature who is dead in trespasses and sins cannot produce uh, the fruit of the Spirit. All they can do is produce the dead works of the flesh. And again, I'm not saying they can never do anything good like be unselfish or help somebody who is poor or something like that. The general characteristic of a life of an unbeliever is the works of the flesh. And the general characteristic of a life of a believer is the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit of God, when He comes into our hearts, makes us new creations. At that instant, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.4, we receive a new nature, the nature of God. And we now have the capacity to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. When Jesus said with regard to false prophets that they would be known by their fruits, he then goes on to illustrate what he is saying by saying, do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And the point that he is making is that we, should, uh, that we would know false prophets, listen, by the lack of spiritual fruit produced in their lives. I mean, thorn bushes are not going to bring forth fruit. The idea that Jesus is emphasizing when he says, you're not going to gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. The idea is that, you know, even as thorn bushes and prickly plants like thistles can't produce anything life-giving like fruit, well, the same is true with false prophets. Their doctrine cannot produce spiritual life in those that embrace it it only leads to death. And Peter talked about these people in Second Peter 2, verses 18 and 19, when he said, For when they speak, he's talking about these false teachers, prophets, when they speak, I like this, great swelling words of emptiness. I like that. I mean, look, you got to give it to some of these people on television. They are really good communicators, aren't they? Now, I'm a communicator, and I, I appreciate hearing somebody who can really communicate a topic. I mean, I, I appreciate the giftedness that they have to communicate something. I don't agree with what's being communicated most of the time, but I can appreciate uh, how gifted they are in bringing forth this teaching. But you know what? Once you get past the fancy, flowery verbiage and the charismatic presentation, listen to what is actually being said, all right? Peter nailed it perfectly. It's great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lusts of the flesh. While they promise them liberty, the people that follow their ministries, they themselves, the false teachers, are slaves of corruption. See, again, Peter is making the same point we're trying to make here. Spiritual death cannot produce life and liberty. No matter how promising and positive a message these false prophets preach. Jesus said, even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. The word good there is the Greek word agathos. 
And it's a Greek word that can be used to speak in the physical sense of something that is good, as in this context of a good, or in other words, a healthy tree. The word bad there is the Greek word paneros, and can be used to speak in the physical sense of something bad, as in this context of a bad tree, or in other words, a tree that's rotten or diseased. But these two Greek words can also be used in a moral or character sense as well, and often are in the New Testament. Let me give you two passages. You can write it down. Don't have to turn to them. But in Matthew 5, Jesus Christ is talking about the children of God and how they are to act like their Father in heaven. He says, Do these things that he just talked about, Matthew 5.45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, or in other words, that you may show the world you are children of God. For he makes his son to rise on the evil, paneras, morally evil, and on the good, agathos, morally good, and sends his reign on the just, he's talking about believers there, and on the unjust who are unbelievers. In other words, he says, look, your father, he's not only good to those who are his kids, he's also good to those who are not his kids. And then to kind of really nail this home, in Matthew 12, verse 35, he said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil things. What's the Lord doing here? He is telling us everything is going to bring forth after its kind. A person who is good is why? Why are they good? Because they're saved. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of them. So a good person brings forth, out of the new nature that they have, good things, good character, good fruit, fruit of the Spirit. An evil person, in other words, an unsaved individual, brings forth out of their hearts the actions of their life which are then evil or bad because everything will bring forth after its kind. A person who has the nature of God brings forth now the character of God from uh, their life. A person who is not saved, still under the control of the devil, now still continues to live that fallen life, fallen nature, and out of that fallen nature comes many evil things. Paul calls them the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Alright, how can we then recognize a false prophet? Well, look at what is being produced in and through their lives in the sense of character and conduct and what comes out of their mouth in the sense of what they say with regard to content. If we're going to know false prophets, we're going to know them by their fruit, quote unquote. They really don't have any good fruit, obviously. So, but Jesus likens the actions of their life, their character, their conduct, and even the content of what they say, the message they preach. He calls that the kind of fruit is bad, but we look for that to see whether a person is really, you know, a false prophet. And if those things are not there and they speak the word of God in truth and the fruit of the Spirit is coming forth from their lives, then of course they represent God. But look, let me just say this again. We, we looked at this last time. When it comes to these False teachers don't fall into the trap of style over substance. I mean, once again, these people are very engaging. They're very charismatic. They're very uh, dynamic oftentimes in their presentation of the gospel. And here's the problem today. We are living in a culture that is obsessed with celebrities. And celebrities, for the most part, is all about style, isn't it? It's all about, Hollywood is all about style. And some of that has come into the church, where in the church we have Christian celebrities, some of which are not even Christian, 
who are false prophets, false teachers, but they're really good communicators. And people get wild with all the outward charisma, all the style, and they're not really listening for the substance of what they're actually saying. Be very careful. Don't fall into that trap. Now, when Jesus said we would know them by their fruit, listen, that's not always an easy thing to spot. With some of these characters, it's pretty obvious. Others are much more subtle. From a distance, the fruit may look good. But as we said last time, the closer you get and the harder you look, the more evident the disease of the tree and the rottenness of the fruit becomes. I see many of you here this morning are too young to remember Jim Jones. I remember him. Okay, I didn't follow his ministry, but I remember him. I wasn't a Christian at the time. All right. I, I remember him from a distance. But as I was reading, uh, studying for this message, I came across something that Pastor John MacArthur included in his commentary on this section in Matthew, talking about this particular false prophet named Jim Jones. Let me read to you what he said, and I quote, He said, One of the most frightening discoveries about the People's Temple Christian Church was that a large majority of its members had been raised in Christian homes of one sort or another. Most of those who joined that church did so in the belief that it offered a higher and more genuine experience of Christian fellowship and service. Yet the church dissolved overnight when its leader, Jim Jones, and nearly 1,000 of his most loyal followers committed mass suicide at Jonestown, a remote church settlement in the jungles of Guyana, South America, on November 18, 1978. In his book, Deceived, Mel White tries to determine why so many people could be so fatally misled. Among the reasons he, he suggests are, and now he quotes from this author, Mel White, who said he, Jim Jones, knew how to inspire hope. He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the retarded. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center. He provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal. Now, when I tell you, sometimes the fruit is a pretty good counterfeit. Here's what I'm talking about. Mel White says, on the other hand, we find all the marks of a false prophet. He promoted himself through the use of celebrities, a very common vehicle for false prophets to gain credibility. He manipulated the press. He wanted certain favorable stories. He was big on playing on the press. He used the language and forms of faith to gain his power. MacArthur goes on to say, Jim Jones created a warm, purportedly Christian community. But he replaced Jesus Christ as the authority and more and more garnered loyalty to himself. He began demanding money for every service he offered and was, was preoccupied with sex in both its normal and deviant forms. He would lie convincingly about anything in order to gain an advantage or make a desired impression. Before his bizarre death, he managed to gain, listen, the admiration and praises of countless church leaders, governors, senators, congressmen, and even the President of the United States, end quote. So when the Lord Jesus Christ says, you're going to know these guys by their fruit, understand that's not always as obvious as it sounds. In other words, it's not always an easy thing to spot. Sometimes it takes a real close examination. You say, well, is that, isn't that being a little critical, folks? It's being careful. It's being careful. 
It often requires careful scrutiny of the man or the woman and their message. As Paul said in Romans 16, verse 18, By smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And the Greek could be translated the undiscerning or the unsuspecting. The problem today in why so many churches are being taken in by false teachers and preachers who don't sneak into the church, they're invited to come into the church, is because churches and church leaders today, for the most part, are not being vigilant. They're not watching out for these. Jesus said, beware. Look, as I said before, I would rather not talk about false prophets and teachers. I would rather talk about you know something uplifting like the love of God, the character of God, and so on. But if the Lord Jesus Christ Himself had not warned us to beware and be on the lookout for these people... We would move right past it. But you know what? Because Jesus told us, be vigilant, be watching, beware. We had better listen to what he is saying. And if we don't, we do so at our own peril. And many churches have done this to their own peril. And once a false teacher comes in, they infect a body with poisonous teaching. And then they leave. But the poison doesn't go with them. It stays planted in that body until it spreads and begins to take it over and kill it slowly. And many churches have succumbed to the poison of false doctrine. So we need to be very vigilant. We need to be watching and not naive. Now, Jesus, you know them by their fruit. Well, part of that has to do with character, doesn't it? The first thing we look for is the fruit of character uh, in discerning whether somebody is of God or not of God. And I say the fruit of character, I mean primarily the lack of, thereof. Uh, That's what we see in false prophets. It's a lack of godly character because the Spirit of God is not in them. Therefore, they cannot be godly. Truly, they can fake it. Many do it really well. The thing about it is, and I've seen this over and over with people who have left organizations or a ministry of somebody that was very visible like some of these TV guys because they became disillusioned. They started following this person because they really believed in him. And once they got into the ministry and started looking, seeing behind the scenes what was going on, they were totally disillusioned. Because the persona presented in front of the camera is quite different than what is really going on in their lives when the cameras are turned off. Most people wouldn't know that, but if you work for the ministry and you saw this guy uh, every day, you could really understand that. So one of the greatest tests as to whether a person really represents God and is speaking on behalf of God is is the fruit of the Spirit coming forth from their lives on a consistent basis. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, and so on. Paul called this in Philippians 1 the fruits of righteousness. The fruits of righteousness. We would also say in another way, does he or she have a beatitude attitude? Remember Jesus started the whole sermon with the beatitudes? which were the qualities, the inner qualities of a child of God. First of all, are they poor in spirit? The word means destitute in spirit. In other words, a person who is poor in spirit understands they have nothing to offer God in the way of good works or moral goodness to earn their salvation. To be saved, Jesus is saying, you have to come to God broken, destitute, You have to say to God, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. There's In me, there's no good thing. I have nothing to offer you in the way of works or character that will earn my salvation. I am completely destitute of anything good. And I come to you as a total 
impoverished beggar asking you for mercy, asking you for salvation. Well, Jesus said, the poor in spirit, these are the ones who are going to what? See God. Are these people poor in spirit? I don't know. When I see them on TV, they look pretty self-confident to me. Always pointing to the good things that they do. They do, you know. Do you realize I was listening to a study this week on Mormonism? And uh, the teacher was saying that uh, Joseph Smith Jr., who founded the Mormon church, came to a point where he said he was the only guy in history who ever kept the church together. I mean, not even Jesus' disciples stayed with him, but my disciples have stayed with me. Not even Jesus held the church together. I did. Now, you see, when you start hearing stuff like that, that should be a red flag. All right? I mean, are they poor in spirit? Do they mourn over their sins? Most of these folks, you get the impression they never sin. Are they meek or are they self-confident, cocky, and proud? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are they merciful, pure in heart, and peacemaker? So character is the first thing we look at. Second thing would be conduct. You know, conduct flows from character. Or in other words, a changed heart produces a changed life. In fact, John the Baptist alluded to this uh, when we read in Luke chapter 3 how that he was preaching a baptism of repentance and people were coming who had repented of their sins and they wanted to be baptized by John because Messiah was coming and they wanted to be ready. And so the Pharisees came. Not because they were repenting for anything, but everybody else was getting baptized and John's, you know, the prophet in town. I mean, he's the big guy right now and we want to be associated with his ministry. So they come to John to be baptized by him. It's all a front, all a facade, right? And John looks at them and apparently he didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So John looks at these guys and goes, You children of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He said, Bring forth fruits worthy of what? Repentance, and then I'll baptize you. The idea is that when a person is truly broken over their sins, and they come and they repent and, and confess Jesus and receive Jesus, I mean, it's going to bring a changed life, isn't it? I'll give you one example. Turn to Luke 19. And you know what I'm talking about. We don't have to belabor this. I'll show you in Scripture a dramatic change that took place in one man's life. It's a little guy named Zacchaeus. Luke 19. I won't read the whole story. I'll just read a couple of verses and tell you what happened. But it says in Luke 19, verse 1, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Well, you know why he was rich? Because the tax collectors were notorious extortionists. They not only collected the taxes that Rome mandated, but they also extorted people to give them... They, they robbed people. That's where they were so hated. All right? Now, here comes Jesus. Now, no doubt God had been working in Zacchaeus' heart somehow. But here comes Jesus into town now. And Zacchaeus has heard about Jesus and would love to see him. The problem was he was a little guy and he didn't want to work his way through the crowd to try to see Jesus. He probably wouldn't be able to see over uh, people in front of him, number one. Number two, though, tax collectors avoided crowds like the plague. Why? Because they were so hated that it was so easy for somebody to slip a dagger in your back uh, in a big crowd and slip away. They avoided crowds. So Zacchaeus runs up the street you know, and climbs up a sycamore tree. And he's got a nice little 
vantage point there, the old balcony seat, right? And here comes Jesus walking down the street in the crowd with him. And suddenly Jesus stops right under the sycamore tree, looks up and goes, Zacchaeus, come on down. I need to have lunch at your house today. Well, Zacchaeus is thrilled. He scurries down and takes the Lord home. And we don't know what happened. They ate lunch, obviously. We don't know all that was said. At some point during that lunch, Zacchaeus gets saved. How do you know that? Well, verse 8, we read, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. That's a changed life, isn't it? And Jesus affirms his salvation by saying, Today salvation has come to this house. Look, true salvation always brings with it the fruit of a changed life. But again, it isn't always so easy to determine with regard to false prophets because false prophets are very good at covering over what's really going on in their hearts with a thin veneer of pseudo-spirituality and artificial works of righteousness. In other words, they often appear to be very sincere, religious, and godly. But if you look closely enough, you'll see the inconsistencies in their lives. It was John Calvin who said, and I quote, nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. Oh, false teachers can do it a little bit. Like I said, in front of the camera, oh, they come across as the most virtuous people around. If you look a little bit, there's always somebody who has left the organization and is trying to get the word out, look, man, I fell for this guy, but he is bad news. One guy in Texas had a phenomenal ministry down there years ago. I mean, he was really taking the, the Metroplex by storm, the Dallas area. And uh, he was one of those guys on TV. And um, send your prayer request in. We have a team of people that are going to pray for you. And, and when you do, will you please send a generous uh, donation to our ministry? Well, I think it was Channel 7 did a little th- secret thing, you know. And they showed how that the bags of mail were brought to the ministry how they were opened up, the letters, the checks were taken out, and the prayer requests were thrown in the dumpster. They showed this. They showed the guys emptying the bags of, of open mail into the dumpsters. Nobody prayed over those requests. You can always tell these guys, too, they're usually obsessed with money, possessions, power. Kind of like the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a lot of people fooled, didn't they? With their phony piety, but Jesus called them hypocrites. In whitewashed tombs, the Lord pointed out their conduct and lifestyle as proof of their hypocrisy that they were false prophets. He said in Matthew 23, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you are going to incur the greater condemnation. In other words, many of these Pharisees were wealthy. They owned lands and houses. And if a woman's husband passed away, she became a widow and fell in hard times, they wouldn't extend her any credit. They wouldn't try to work with her. The first moment they got, they would foreclose, take the house away from her, then to soothe their conscience and to make themselves seem very godly and pious, they would then stand on the street corners and offer these long prayers. And Jesus said, you know what? You guys think you're fooling people? You're not fooling God. And you know what? The hottest fires of hell are reserved for people like you who claim to represent God but are actually using your position to rip people off and to throw widows out of their houses and you claim to be men of God. 
Wow. We look at the fruit of their character, the fruit of their conduct, and third and quickly, the fruit of the content of the message they preach. Because false teachers are proud and driven by a desire for power, prestige, and popularity, listen, the message that they preach is often very positive. In fact, it's designed to tickle ears, which brings us to another fruit, quote-unquote, of a false prophet, and that is false doctrine. You know, when Jesus said we would know false prophets by their fruit, let me just come at this from a slightly different angle. If I was to ask you, what is the fruit of an apple tree? What would you say? Thank you. It's not a, a <laughs> trick question. You think, is this a trick question? No, it's not a trick question. All right. What's the fruit of an apple tree? Apples. What's the fruit of an orange tree? Oranges. What's the fruit of a false prophet? False prophecies. Very good, right? You know... To me, it's amazing. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the organization has predicted the end of the world about five, six, seven times. I don't know, 1914, 1917, 1921. Up as recent as 1970-something, they were predicting, this is it, this is the year. Jesus is coming back and so on. And if you, you, you challenge them, and I've done this, you know, I've challenged them on this. You know, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 18, God says, if any prophet who claims to represent me tells you anything that doesn't come to pass, What? Write them off as a false stoneum. Don't even listen to them, right? No, I see your organization has predicted the end of the world about five times. You know, you, your, your organization claims that you guys are prophets. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, we're prophets in a sense. Seriously, we're prophets in a sense. So what you do is you hand them your Bible and say, you know what, my Bible talks about false prophets and talks about true prophets. Can you find prophets in a sense in there for me? Prophets, in a sense, are false prophets. How about this guy, Harold Camping, who's predicted the end of the world several times. In fact, last time, what, it was last year, uh, May 21st or something, that was going to be it, right? Lord showed him, you know. May 21st came and went, 2011. Oh, no, no, made a slight miscalculation. It's, no, it's October 21st, 2011. Well, here we are now, right, February of 2012, you think everybody who followed this character would have left. Some probably did. He's still got a big following and takes in a lot of money from these people. So some of this is not so hard to figure out. Yeah, but false prophets aren't just known by their false prophecies. Listen, they're most often known by their false doctrine. Do you realize that many mainline denominational pastors no longer believe? And we've talked about this. But many mainline denominational pastors no longer believe in the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, if you can believe that, the blood atonement, the inerrancy of Scripture, or the reality of hell. In fact, you know that this weekend, right now, this weekend, there are churches all across our country and across the world who are celebrating what they call Evolution Weekend. Realize that? You go home Google it. Every year, the weekend that falls on or near the birth date of Charles Darwin, which is February 12th, so we nailed it this year, becomes Evolution Weekend, where in many churches celebrate it by reaffirming their belief that a person can believe in evolution and in Christianity, and the two are not mutually exclusive. They can harmonize in a person's heart with no problem at all. In fact, those that organize this Evolution Weekend, here's what they have said. This comes from their organization. They said, and I quote, Religious people from many diverse faith traditions, don't you love that? 
religious people from many diverse faith traditions. You know what that's a euphemism for? The Broadway. The Broadway. Let's read it that way. Religious people from the Broadway and locations around the world understand that evolution is quite simply sound science. And for them, it does not in any way threaten, demean, or diminish their faith in God. In fact, for many, the wonders of science often enhance and deepen their awe and gratitude towards God. The organization states, Indeed, the world's various faith traditions routinely find themselves in harmony with the tenets of modern science, including evolution, end quote. Well, evangelist Ray Comfort has written books against atheism, right? Uh, one is called, You Can Lead an Atheist to the Facts, But You Can't Make Him Think. Okay. Uh, says, the only science in evolution is science fiction. You have to read some of this stuff to understand what he's saying. You know, I was in California. I watched the DVD. Well, I'm going to buy it and show it to you one, one uh, Wednesday night. It's called uh, The God of Wonders. It is spectacular. Maybe some of you have seen it. I had never seen it before. And we all know that we're all believers in the Lord. We all know He created everything. But man, this DVD, wow. I mean, you really have to work hard to be an atheist when you, read, when you watch something like this. And how everything in creation is so designed that to ignore a creator is the height of ignorance, arrogance, and foolishness. And, and we'll get the DVD and we'll show it to you. But these pastors and clergy to participate in this evolution weekend are part of the very false prophets Jesus is warning us against. However, with many of these false prophets, these false teachers, what they don't teach is more deceptive than what they do teach. They don't teach the whole counsel of God, do they? Their message is always very positive. They only talk about the love of God, the mercy of God, and the grace and blessings of God. They never talk about... Uh, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, or the coming judgment of God. They only focus on the positive truth in the Bible and never the negative truth, uh, which causes people to grow comfortable with and complacent about their sins. As we've already seen, that was exactly what the false prophets did in Jeremiah's day. They were men-pleasers that tickled ears to gain popularity, power, and prestige. Very simply. They were going around telling the people how much God loved them, how much God was pleased with them, and how much God was going to bless them, even though at that time the people were living in open idolatry and immorality. But the false prophets kept preaching a positive, optimistic message of hope, blessing, and prosperity, even as the judgment of God crept nearer and nearer. And true prophets like Jeremiah were screaming for the people to repent. In fact, Jeremiah said to the people, these false prophets are guilty of filling you with vain hopes. They continually say to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you, and no evil is going to come upon you. Don't listen to Jeremiah. He's all negative, man. You know, he's all, you, know, you want to go to his church? He's negative. Come out to our fellowship, man. We're positive. We keep it upbeat. Yeah, you know, sometimes the truth is very negative. Okay, God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely what, Eve? Die. That's kind of negative. Satan said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to become like what? Like God. That's pretty positive. The problem is, the positive was wrong and the negative was true. Be careful, right? Because of it, God said, 
And they have put a band-aid on a mortal wound. Here the, the nation is dying. And the false prophets are... God's trying to bring conviction. He's trying to cut their hearts with the sword of the Spirit, which is His Word, right? To bring conviction, repentance. And every time God tries to cut their hearts through Jeremiah or one of the other good prophets, as they're preaching the right stuff, here comes the false prophet running over a little band-aid. Oh, no, listen to him. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And that's what false prophets do. They want to keep things positive. They want people to like them because when people like them, they come to hear them. They give to their ministries. The message of many false prophets today is very positive. It's a promise of material blessings, yet it contains no mention of holiness, repentance, and ultimately obedience. And because of it, it gives people a false sense of security. It allows them to hang on to their sins while still feeling right with God. I told first service, there's a church in California, and after the service, somebody came up and says, there's a church right here in this city, right here in, in, close by, does the same thing, where they, they are baptizing people living together who I'm assuming are unbelievers. I mean, I would imagine that if two people have just recently gotten saved and they were living together, they're not going to maybe move out immediately. But if you live together for any length of time, if you're a Christian, I mean, the Spirit of God is going to start convicting us about stuff like that. But I get the impression that, you know, as long as these people want to come and be baptized, they, they will invite them to come. And it doesn't matter if they're living together or if they're walking in known sin. It's all about the numbers. We want to show... How many people we've baptized over the course of the year? Well, when you do things like that, you give unbelievers a false sense of security. You make them think that they are right with God because they went through a ritual. When in reality, they have not repented for their sin and gotten their lives right with God. Look, false preachers, false prophets, they don't preach the narrow gate bottom line. The gate that Jesus preached, which is the true gospel. Theirs is a watered-down gospel that only emphasizes the blessings without dealing with any of the sacrifices. Look, false teachers talk about the cross, as we said last time, but they never preach the cross. And Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty-seven, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, how can a person crank out true disciples when they're telling people there's no cross involved, there's no self-sacrifice, God wants you wealthy, healthy, successful, prosperous. Where's the cross in that message? Who wouldn't want a gospel like that? I mean, where God is basically a divine vending machine and stick the money in, pull the handle, and the goodies drop out. I mean, you know, give to our ministry, God will bless you a hundred times back. Jesus said the narrow way is the way of the cross. It's a crucified life. That you take up your cross, deny yourself and follow Him. That's a true disciple. And that's what happens in the heart of a person who really receives Him. I'll give you one more quote and we'll close. Arthur W. Pink, phenomenal man of God, wrote this years ago. I'll read it to you. And I quote, False prophets are to be found in the circles of the most orthodox and pretend to have a fervent love for souls, yet they fatally delude multitudes concerning the way of salvation. These pulpit, platform, and pamphlet hucksters, we could add TV and radio to that list, have wantonly lowered the standard of divine holiness and so adulterated the gospel in order to make it palatable to the carnal mind, end quote. And Jesus warned that many would follow them down the broad way that leads to hell. But false prophets were not the only thing that Jesus warned us against in this final section of the Sermon on the Mount. 
He also warned us about false professions. It's one thing to guard against being deceived by somebody else. I think the worst kind of deception is what? Self-deception. And we'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word brings light. It guides us, Lord, along the path of life. If we walk in its light, we'll never stumble in darkness. We are living in a day, Lord, when the word is being downplayed and even uh, marginalized or, or thrown out of churches altogether. And Lord, because of it, many people think they're right with you when in fact they are still dead in trespasses and sins. And we just pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would work in the hearts of your people in this country, Lord, because revival is not going to come from unbelievers. It has to come among your people as your spirit begins to move and begins to convict our hearts. And as you said in your word of my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear their prayer from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. And Father, these are desperate days. These are the kind of days we were warned about. That in the last days, people would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. This is stuff going on in the church, Lord, you warned us about. And Father, we just pray that you would give us grace to walk in your truth, to study your word, to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth in our lives. That we don't just let other people tell us what to believe, we seek it out for ourselves by studying your word. That we would be people who are filled with the Spirit. People who are loving and yet discerning. Father, give us grace. Because we want to be lights in the darkness. We want to stand for truth in a world of lies. Give us grace to do that, Lord. But we have to know the truth if we're going to stand for the truth. And so give us grace, Lord. Give us an insatiable hunger for your word. Uh, Give us grace to walk in its truths every single day. We just praise you and ask you to continue to bless our study of your word on Sunday mornings. In Jesus' name, amen.